for humans, even though we don't like the idea of forgetting, think it's a bad thing. It's actually a very important mechanism in our brain that helps with learning and helps with processing information. So could it be the case that that same process could be beneficial to artificial neural networks? Hey there, I'm your host, Kan Jun, and we are Generally Intelligent, an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Hattie Zoe is a PhD student at Mila, working with Hugo LaRochelle and Aaron Corbill. Her research focuses on understanding how and why neural networks work, starting with deconstructing why lottery tickets work, and most recently exploring how forgetting may be fundamental to learning. Prior to Mila, she was a data scientist at Uber, and she did research with Uber AI Labs, which is now ML Collective. She says, I don't want to, I don't want what I'm working on to have any applied value. You know, I just want to know the answer to this question that doesn't really matter or didn't seem to matter. I so. totally resonate with that. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a giant side quest right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love the way you put it. Something that you said when you were talking about kind of how you got into the research area of trying to fundamentally understand how neural networks work is that you started to kind of like ask questions that you felt like didn't really have answers. What were some of the questions that you were interested in and what are some of the questions you're interested in now? So at the start, I was very just, I had no understanding really. I had no idea why if you just train a model using backpropagation, it's going to generalize. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know in those terms, but yeah, what, how is the model representing this data? Is there any way to see inside what the model is doing? And one of the first talks I ever attended on AI research talk was actually with Jason Yusinski, who works on the Deep Viz Toolbox, which basically lets you see what individual neurons are doing inside the model. And I was just blown away by that. It's like, this is so cool. Like somehow when you train the individual neurons, learn to specialize to something. So I think my very first question that I tried to answer as a little research project was, is the model doing some sort of implicit curriculum learning while Mm -hmm. it's being trained? Is it somehow learning easy examples first and then harder examples later? Because Mm -hmm. I had heard about curriculum learning as a thing that you can do explicitly. And Mm -hmm. I know that humans can benefit from it. So I wondered if this is something that's happening already. Mm -hmm. So it's just very like a bit of a random question that just popped up and I wanted to explore it. And then after that, it became more like reading about papers that identify certain phenomenon that was interesting or unexplained and wanted to better understand what's going on there. The lottery ticket hypothesis, for example, was the first one where I did that exploration. I'm curious, what ended up being the answer to your initial question? Is the model doing some sort of implicit curriculum learning as it's being trained? Yeah, so now it seems kind of obvious that it is Mm -hmm. because we know that models learn easy examples first. and because it's learning easy examples first, it seems to be learning 
features tied to those is examples, which tend to be more general features, more prototypical examples tend to be easy. And therefore, features that's useful for those examples tend to be more general. And that later I've found in the forgetting paper, actually, that that process is helpful for generalization. So yes, I think the answer is yes. What makes an example easy versus hard? That's a good question. I think if the example is very typical of a class and it doesn't have a lot of weird features, then in order to classify that example, all you need are the common features of that class, Mm -hmm. which you can find in many examples. And the model is going to be able to learn those features really well because Mm -hmm. many examples will share them. And so if that's all you need to classify a particular example, then that makes it easy. But no, quantitatively, you can measure things like the model's confidence on that example. If it's not very confident, it might signal that it's a hard example. Mm. Although that'll depend on like which examples it's seen. One thing I'm curious is like, what if you showed it only hard examples? Would it learn much more slowly? And which is maybe what you would expect is that it would learn more slowly because it's not somehow not able to find good features that generalize between examples, or maybe it'll learn faster because it finds the relevant features faster. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would suspect that it would learn slowly and probably more poorly just because it might get confused, especially in the early stage of training when the model doesn't really have any features. It might just latch on to some weird correlation that exists but aren't general. Mm, Interesting. Well, it also reminds me of if you train on random labels, Mm. then... The model will learn very slowly, but it will learn. But also, once you train on random labels, it's very hard for that same model to then learn on normal data. Oh, so really? it really like puts you in a bad place in the weight space. <laughs> Although I seem to remember some paper about generalization where if you're looking at like skewed data sets, for example, I think they were showing a sort of simple trick for getting better generalization or like better performance across all these different classes is just to get rid of a lot of the easy ones so that it's a little bit more balanced. Mm. Like one thing that they suggested, which is kind of related, like they would be easy, but it's mostly just because the class is too common. And so if you want better, gen- so it's not always the case that you, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. That's kind of what you were saying, Ken, you know, like what if you had only hard examples? Well, if you have like thousands of different classes, some of which appear only a few times, that's like showing only just the hard examples but it can still be useful sometimes because then you actually care about those more than you care about the main classes. The main, the main classes yeah. or the quote-unquote easy examples. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because you do actually, the hard examples are very important for better generalization, especially mm-hmm. to weird examples. If your test example is a very common one, you actually, it's, right. it's easy to get it right, but when it's hard, right. That's when you need the hard examples. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's a very good point. That's yeah, and I feel like that comes in a lot actually with like fairness and bias and like thinking about like how this impacts people in the real world too. Because yes, you know, there might be tons of people who do this one average thing, but then there's outliers. So like you don't want your model to do really orally on these outliers. You want it to also be fair for them as well. So you kind of need to think about that like mix of data in the real world. Like in our, you know, nice little machine learning environment, we always have like, oh, ID data, it's all nice and uniform, everything is so good. But in the real world, it's not like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In this random labels example that you gave, 
is the problem set up such that you randomly label, like let's say you take ImageNet and then you give all the images random labels and then the model learns to, so the model basically learns really weird features to form. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's one way to get an adversarial initialization, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. That's so interesting. (laughs) Extremely adversarial initialization. Right, right. So you were talking about lottery ticket hypothesis was a paper that you read. And I remember reading that and being like, what? That's weird. I actually studied it, which is really interesting. Yeah, in fact, we had Jonathan Frankel, the author of it, on here as a podcast guest earlier. That's so, right. Oh, a long time ago. Yeah, it was very interesting, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But you actually studied it and had some, I read uh, Deconstructing Lottery Tickets. Do you want to kind of briefly go through summary of the paper and kind of what you were exploring and what you learned? Yeah. So the lottery ticket hypothesis presented a very interesting idea to me, which is that one of the reasons or part of the reason why over-parameterization is so helpful is because when you initialize the model with a lot of weights, then just by random chance, you might get a subnetwork within that model that just is initialized at a good spot where it's easy for the model to learn the particular task. Mm. So if you have these lucky subnetworks, then the model could just leverage that good initial spot and go down a pretty nice path of learning. And when you have a lot of ways, then you have more chances, more combinations of these subnetworks, which is why they're called lottery tickets. So that was a really intuitively appealing explanation for why overparameterization is helpful. Mm-hmm. And the way they find these lottery tickets in the original paper by Jonathan Frankel and uh, Michael Carbon is by doing magnitude pruning. So you start with the normal network, you train it fully to convergence. And then at the end of training, you look at which weights had the smallest magnitudes. And then for these weights, you prune them, meaning you set them to zero and you freeze them. And then for the remaining weights, you rewind them back to their initializations. And so these remaining weights would constitute the lottery ticket, essentially, the lucky subnetwork. And the paper showed that all you need to do to get to that performance of the original model is by training the subnetwork that you find. In fact, I think they even show that you can do better than the original network by training the sparse network. By retraining the sparse network. Which is pretty counterintuitive. (laughs) But kind of makes sense based on, like, after you examined it in your paper, now I understand it better. I feel like kind of why that might be the case. When you read the lottery ticket hypothesis, like, what were the questions that came to mind? Like, what were you wondering? Yeah, I was wondering, one, why is the magnitude pruning algorithm the right way to identify these lottery yeah. tickets. Yeah. It seems very simple. So why are these weights that end up large also good if you trade them in isolation from their initializations? Yeah. That was the main question I think I wanted to answer. And the other questions are, what about the subnetwork is important? Why is this particular subnetwork good for the training process? <laughs> and could other ways of identifying subnetworks also work? 
So those were some of the first questions that came to mind. But as we were exploring and finding new things, then new questions came up. But that was the initial interest. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so in your paper, you explored like why setting weights and zero is important, why masking ends up kind of behaving like training. And then you also had this interesting result where I think if you reinitialize the network with random weights or different weights, then it does not perform as well as if you keep the weights the same. But if you keep all the signs of the weights the same, it actually performs almost as well. Or you didn't do a comparison against the original, but at least it like retains some performance. Yeah, yeah, it performed as well, at least in our experiments. Oh, interesting. That's like keeping the initialization the same. Right, right. And actually, even if you just kept the sign and you changed all of the weights to, say, plus 0.1, minus 0.1, and that's your new initialization, it still worked just as well, at least on these small networks and small data sets. Yeah. Which is very strange. (laughs) Very strange. And not only that, if you do that, where you keep the sign the same, you set them to constant, like plus or minus alpha. And then you had this extra thing where it was like, oh, and then we can train the mask to like pick a slightly better mask. And we can like do this one little relatively simple trick with like reweighting the things in there. Then it was doing like just as well as like the original network or significantly better in many cases. It was very interesting to see how much you can get by just having that mask and not even changing the weights at all. I thought that was a really interesting uh, result. Yeah, the super mask was definitely an accidental discovery from the paper, which I think is the thing I'm most excited about that came out of that work. Because, it, yeah, it was very surprising. Essentially, what we found was that not only are these subnetworks that you identify through this magnitude pruning process, not only are you able to train them to good performance, actually, they already have good performance even before you train them. (laughs) Identify, I think this is, you know, the funny thing about these kind of words. Jonathan Frankel, he would have seen this if he just looked at accuracy at iteration zero before training, but that's not something people normally do, right? (laughs) Who cares about that? But I came in not knowing how people normally train models. So I was just trying to track everything. And that's... (laughs) when we saw this weird phenomenon. So so the super mask idea is basically like you're finding a mask such that even if if you apply the mask and put in all the weights that the mask covers, then randomly initialize the rest of the weights, then it still performs very well. I think it's like 80% on MNIST and 41% on CIFAR 10 or something. Yeah, so you got to mask some of the weights, set Mm -hmm. them to zero. And then the remaining ways you keep it as is at the initial values. At the initial values of the initialized weights. Okay. Yeah. If you randomly reinitialize the ways, then it wouldn't work anymore with that same mask. I see. I see. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it was like 80% on MNIST and 41% on CFAR. Do you think that their like performance scales down as complexity of the data set goes up? Like if you have to ImageNet, would you expect the performance to be even lower? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of follow-up works that did do that, try to scale up the idea of training the supermask instead of training the underlying weights. How well can you actually, through training, find a mask that works on a randomly initialized and untrained model? And I think 
you can get pretty good performance even on ImageNet if you do that process properly. One thing that helps with supermass training is how many parameters you have, how big yeah. is your network. Because intuitively, you can imagine, it, actually papers have shown this theoretically, that as your number of parameters increase, the likelihood that a subnetwork within that model will achieve very good performance on the task increases as well. Mm. And as you increase that, you increase the likelihood of a good subnetwork, you can guarantee the existence of a good subnetwork that will achieve as high as accuracy as you want, essentially. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> really interesting. <laughs> and it, it makes sense, right? Because you just have so many subnetworks to choose from. Mm-hmm. And that's really the argument here. Interesting. Why do you think the sign constant works where if you just keep the signs, it still gets to do just as well, even without retraining, it seems like? Yeah, I think the original sign constant experiment in our paper no longer works when you scale up the data set and the model. So at ImageNet scale and on like large ResNets and things like that, keeping the sign alone no longer works. So it might have to do with the complexity of the problem. If the problem is very simple, all you really need to do is the right combination of pluses and minuses, right? That makes sense. Uh So that's my hunch. It's basically like it results in a somewhat lower dimensional prediction space. If you preserve the signs, but then turn everything into constants, where if it's not all constants, then you end up with a much higher dimensional output space or like prediction space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's... Right. Yeah, the, the representational power, I guess, of the model reduces, right. but... Reduces. Right, mm-hmm. right. That makes sense. One question that I have, and this is a little bit speculative, but I was curious to hear your thoughts on it. It's like, okay, you train this thing, you get this sort of like pretty sparse sub-network that you have. It feels like that tells us something about the priors that are useful for this problem or the structure of like a good solution for this problem or... It feels like it should be telling us something about like the right structure for these networks of this like data set and like type of problem that we're trying to solve. But I don't really know how do you go back from, okay, we have this like mask and we masked out these things, but that's kind of inducing this structure. How do we go back from that to like, hmm, like maybe we should have reinitialized our layers differently or change the widths of the layers or like change something about this architecture to kind of like move it closer to this thing? Like, is there any way to kind of connect from these sparse? some networks and this magnitude pruning or like other types of like lottery ticket work back to like, how do we change the architectures in the first place? That's a very good question and a very difficult question. So I think if you looked at the structure of the masks on a simple data set like MNIST, mm-hmm. you could actually see the structure, especially in the first layer. You can see mm-hmm. that the ways that are masked out are the ways that connect to empty space usually on the borders of the digit. (laughs) That kind of analysis gets very, I mean, gets impossible. (laughs) (laughs) You move away from MNIST. And I almost think that I'm pessimistic about kind of taking a sparse structure that you identify from lottery tickets to a general principle of how you should design architectures. Because I almost think the structure itself is just the right combinations of weight values 
mm-hmm. where it just so happens that a lot of those weights are zero, but they're not being used by the model. It's mm-hmm. important that the value of those weights are zero. If you had frozen them, but set mm-hmm. it to some other weights, you might see the performance decrease, especially mm-hmm. if the pruning method uses a magnitude criteria. I guess intuitively, this is a half-big thought, but if it seems like intuitively what happens when, so this is actually a result. This was one of the results you showed in this paper, which is if you set the pruned weights to some random value or like froze them at their initialized value mm-hmm. and beat them at all, but they were not set to zero, didn't work. So like the fact that they're zero means something and well, like, that didn't work. I think it just didn't work as well. It didn't work yeah. as well. Yeah. And so the fact that they're set at zero means something and it's like hand wave, hand wave, lost surface smoothing, question mark, something like that. That's not from my paper though, right? <laughs> <laughs> Your paper. From my brain. paper. <laughs> 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 Completely non-scientific <laughs> conductor. Um, but it's important that there's zero. What's your intuition behind what's going on when the weights are set to zero? It seems like like when the weights are set to zero, it's like causing neurons to be kind of decorrelated from each other or something like that. It's like creating some more structure in this architecture. Well, one simple answer is just the one we propose in the paper, which is this idea that the reason magnitude pruning works is because it's setting weights towards the value that they were going to be mm, at right. anyway. Right. So it's almost like similar to a normal training process. Yeah, like shortcutting the training process by exactly. accelerating the small weights to zero. Exactly. And it's not clear why that doesn't harm, I guess, the learning trajectory of the other weights because mm. those weights aren't zero, right? They don't actually end up being zero. And even if they do, they end up zero while all the other ways have also changed to accommodate that value. So it's not clear exactly why setting it to zero doesn't seem to harm that process. You're still able to find a similar solution. I think Jonathan Franco also showed in some of the papers that these solutions are linearly connected. So they're all arriving at the same basin in the solution space. Oh, that's Right. So it's almost just like the same solution you find when you train the model originally, except now you kind of moved it around a bit such that it's a sparse model. Right. You like applied some linear transform to that original solution. Yeah. Sparse model. It's weird. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I agree. (laughs) I feel confused by this because kind of like intuitively, maybe this intuition is wrong, but... I kind of have this intuition that, okay, if having the weights be very small versus having the weights be zero doesn't really make a difference, or in fact, might improve training, maybe what that means is like, there's something about the structure that, like, if a bunch of the weights are set to zero, then the network basically has a different architecture than the previous architecture, than the like fully connected architecture, whatever architecture we gave it. And so in some sense, like this masking situation is architecture search. Like you're kind of doing this architecture search over like via pruning. And what that means is that you like end up with an architecture. That's why I think your question, Josh, is mm-hmm. interesting, which is like, how does finding these subnetworks imply the like right type of architecture solution that fits this data set? Like the idea that there exists subnetworks such that 
many of the weights are set to zero in this fully connected network. There exist subnetworks that are the right shape of the solution. It kind of means that there like exist network architectures where if they were initialized that way, that architecture would have been the right shape of the solution. And it feels like it should be informative for like designing architectures. Like in theory, if we studied a lot of these subnetworks in some systematic way, maybe there would be some way to kind of find patterns between subnetworks yeah. that solve certain types of problems or like are a good fit for certain types of data. Yeah. But I don't know. Curious what you think. Yeah, I think the structure of the subnetworks would be very dependent on the task, on the data set that you're trying to fit, and on the features that the model develop. And so I think intuitively one benefit of sparsity is to get a more robust or clean circuit within mm -hmm. the network where only certain features are connected. Mm -hmm. And right now, if it's everything is densely connected, even if you don't actually want to use certain features in combination with each other, there might be still a small weight tied to it, mm -hmm. even if it's not large or significant. And mm -hmm. that could add some noise. And maybe if you enforce, either you're connected or you're not. And if you're connected, it better be a large way and it better actually be useful. That could be a good prior to impose for generalization purposes. Mm -hmm. But the actual structure, I think, since if it's dependent on the task, it might not be very generalizable in terms of general observation architecture. So I think you're saying we might not get a better ResNet out of this by training it on ImageNet, for example. Right. right? Because but what about like data. But what about like large language models, which generalize at least somewhat in terms of representation learning, seem like they generalize quite well. Like, has anyone done this sparsity work on these very large models that seem to generalize well? Because I would expect that that sparse architecture maybe would be informative. I don't know. I think there is, but I'm not very familiar with that literature. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a lot of those activations end up being pretty sparse too because of the softmax in there sort of forces things to be a little bit more sparse than you would get in the normal in the other like computer vision ones a little bit more mm -hmm. often. You have like all these softmaxes all over the place. So mm -hmm. it does induce a little bit more sparsity. So you actually might it feels like you should be able to make it more sparse, but I think in practice people have struggled. I was actually just looking this up the other day. People have struggled to get the same level of sparsity for transformers that we have for vision models. For vision models, you can do like a 100x reduction in parameters without really losing a ton in yeah. terms of performance. Like you lose a little bit, but the most you can really get off the transformers before they really start to degrade is like 10x. Oh. So, huh. but that's for now. I mean, I think, you know, computer vision came a lot earlier than the sort of NLP, like revolution wave in terms of like historically, right? Like, 2012, we have a lot of like CNN and things like that, but it did not work at all for language back then. It took a while, like until 2017, 2018. So it's a little bit lagging. So maybe someone else out there listening will make it work really well for transformers as well. <laughs> what about vision transformers? I don't know. I didn't look up vision transformers. Okay, yeah. interesting. Because if it doesn't work for language transformers, but what works well for vision transformers, then like then there's something about the structure of the data. Versus like if it doesn't work well for vision transformers, then maybe it's something about transformers. It's interesting. Yeah. I also wonder if, are these transformer models trained on large language data sets? Yeah. It, yeah. There could be a, just based on the complexity of the data set versus the capacity of the model. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Right, right. Like we should actually be studying these in like, I don't know, clip or something. <laughs> well, I think it's the ratio of like a side. 
five days, how long it's been trained. You're in a different regime for the large language models than you are for the computer vision task. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. That's interesting. Yeah, I think this lottery ticket hypothesis paper that you had, I think was really interesting. What are some of the like biggest takeaways that you had from it personally? Like how would it change how you thought about how networks learn, et cetera? I think, <laughs> again, since it was my first paper, everything was really a surprise to me. <laughs> and also not at the same time. I had no <laughs> expectation of how they should work. But maybe a general takeaway was just that a lot of papers come out with a hypothesis to explain their results in the paper. And that hypothesis is usually very reasonable, but it may not be the actual explanation. And I see that a lot where, you know, this kind of goes to the forgetting paper as well, because uh, a lot of papers, they just think this happens for this reason. But oftentimes, your networks can surprise you. And so just keeping that possibility in the back of your mind. I think mm-hmm. in this case, the idea that the masking process is actually a training step was sort of unexpected for me personally. But you can see that when you look at the results and it becomes obvious. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say that's one takeaway for generally how to find good research questions, coming up with different hypotheses to explain the phenomena you're observing and then try to design more experiments to test if those hypotheses are correct. And that's essentially what we did in that entire deconstructing lottery tickets paper is designing yeah. experiments and seeing what comes out. <clears throat> doing actual science. Doing science. So I think one other thing, I, I agree with that. I think one thing that's kind of interesting about that is that it's so strange that this like, training of the mask works and it's especially strange when you take it with respect to like deep learning theory and how people think about these in theoretical ways like really if you're going to have a good theory of common things learned you need one that can admit like these two different entirely strained training processes right like a training process that is the normal training process oh adapting weights blah 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 like people have their different ways of thinking about that but i don't know how you ever apply those to like this place where you're training the mask that's so strange and so I think it'd be, yeah, I'd love to see more like theory work on that as well. Like, how do you come up with a theory that can kind of admit these two very different things? And so that's one thing that I really liked about the work is like showing, hey, look, there's this totally other way you could do deep learning and it actually works almost as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Actually, I would love to see better ways of training super mass or just training mm-hmm. mass on top of weights, because I think there's a lot of unexplored use cases for mm-hmm. these masks. So you could imagine that this kind of training process might be less prone to overfitting, for example. You're still, like your underlying waste is still coming from a random initialization. And another use case that I've seen some papers do is to use it as a way to probe a trained model. So now instead of looking at a mass on top of randomly initialized waste, you take a trained model, and then you try to find a mask that maybe correspond to a certain objective. So you yeah. learn a mask that does well on your original task or maybe even a different but related task. And you see this part of your model 
you may be one way to think about it, right? Is this subnetwork within your training model is responsible for this kind of knowledge that the model mm-hmm. has. Huh. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I've seen something kind of interesting related to that with sort of continual learning where you can say like, oh, okay, yeah, we trained this thing and now we don't really need all those weights. Like, let's just keep these. And so make sure that the future ones don't mess with these ones too much because like these are the only ones that really matter for the stuff we've learned so far. But I'm not sure if there are other examples that you have of people kind of applying that idea. Yeah, I think maybe you're thinking of the supermass and superposition paper. That's which, probably the one, yeah. Yeah, it's from Mitchell Wurtzman. I really love that paper. It's it's very interesting because it makes sense. And I think it will become potentially relevant with these large pre-trained models as well. <laughs> pre-trained models have such a large store of different information. And right now with just normal forward passes, you just get some weird combination of everything that the model knows. Mm-hmm. But maybe the model actually knows the individual components well. And mm. if you have a way to elicit that specific circuit or that knowledge, mm-hmm. then you can kind of control the behavior that you get out of these models. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For example, I have this speculation or hunch or hypothesis that People talk about system one, system two, right? Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, deep learning does system one mostly. But for humans, we don't always rely on system two to solve questions that are reasoning problems, right? <laughs> if you do addition or, you know, multiplication, you might get five times six correct, but then you might get seven times eight wrong just mm-hmm. because you make a mistake. If models did that, we would be like, okay, and model doesn't know anything about multiplication, but for humans, it, it makes sense because you're not always relying on system two. You have to make a conscious decision mm-hmm. when to do that. It takes energy. It takes, it's not the default state. So my speculation is that these large free trade models also have both system one and system two capabilities. Mm-hmm. It's just there may be in different proportion and also they might be the system two capabilities might be masked by system one by the more correlational and easier probably stronger (laughs) features in the model and so if you can find a way to mask that part or amplify certain other capabilities (laughs) inside the model that would be very interesting interesting what would a system two, like, juror or subnetwork look like inside this model? Like, I'm trying to imagine, like, what is a not correlational? I can, well, let me maybe paint an idea and have you tell me if this is right. Uh, see if I got it. Mm-hmm. Basically, if I say, like, the sky is, then, like, blue is pretty likely, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's just the sky is usually blue. So you just have this, like, oh, you know, you're not reasoning about, like, oh, the sky is blue. Mm-hmm. So there are certain words that kind of bias you towards things, but really the sky is, it can be any color or it can be all sorts of different things that can happen in there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you could imagine like looking at all the things that bias, like which words come later and sort of removing that information, that like correlational bias mm-hmm. and just saying like, actually there's other rules that govern what words can go here. Those are the syntactic like system two type of a thing. All these words are valid. All these other words are not valid. 
and they're all equal probability, right? You could imagine kind of like trying to mess with the system to like make it do that, <laughs> like finding masks such that you can change the weights to like rejigger all the probabilities so that these things sort of worked out or look at like what weights are the syntactic ones, like which ones are not coming from the fact that these words co-occurred before. Yeah, I think that's a very good example. Basically, if you imagine the model understands also at a deeper level, some relationship between sky, the color of things, some other reasons for why things have certain colors, but then it also has seen a lot of pictures and stories about blue skies and those features are sort of mixed in together right now <laughs> maybe a easier example is doing arithmetic there's a way the model can follow an algorithm to calculate addition or multiplication step by step but then it's also seen a ton of examples of this times that equals that and so it would pick up some correlational patterns from that. And those features are probably much stronger because we get yeah. much more data for it. It's easy for the model to learn. So I don't know how you would separate out, tease out these two different capabilities. Masking could be a way, but I haven't tried it. But yeah, if you can imagine like reducing the strength of these correlational features, maybe what you have left is something that's more reasoning or a better generalization type of process it almost that example almost seems kind of connected to these like let's solve it step by step kind of a thing where like then it's sort of forcing the model into a different mode where it's yeah. like okay we need to like break down each of the things yeah because most of the time when you see math online or anywhere it's like it's just the number times the number is the answer and so just trying to go straight to the answer you skip all this other stuff but if you force the model to like lay out all the other stuff, then it biases it towards the correct answer because like the structure of the language ahead of time, it's like, oh, well, there's this number here and this number here and this number here and this operation here. So therefore it has those features to pay attention to, whereas it doesn't even right. have the attend to in the other case. Yeah, exactly. Like in context learning or prompting could be <laughs> a very good way of doing this if we know how to use it properly, I think. Right. And like masking is kind of like an alternative to in-context prompting. Yeah, a much more difficult alternative. So. <laughs> what a really interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I imagine less popular, but... <laughs> Until it works, don't worry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You said, you know, when you went into this work, you were asking these two questions, why are the weights that end up large also good? If you train them in isolation from their initializations, and then what is it about the subnetwork that's important? Like, why is it good for this particular subnetwork? Did you feel like you answered those questions? Not really. <laughs> mm -hmm. We understood a little bit better, but there's definitely still a lot that we don't understand. I think what we did understand was this idea that the zero values are actually relevant still. And mm -hmm. that's maybe one reason magnitude pruning is a way to identify lottery tickets. Maybe one intuitive, and I haven't proven this, way of thinking about it is the zero values almost locks you in to a particular path where yeah. those values need to be small. And so that could be one reason you keep going to the same basin, even though your weights are slightly different. <laughs> and that could be a reason why that subnetwork is enough by itself, trained in isolation to get to a similar solution. But yeah, this was all very intuitive. 
it's hard to get answers to these kind of questions. That's <laughs> right. And like in theoretical work, that's yeah. more usually more satisfying. But with empirical understanding, it could be turtles all the way down type of thing. No. Yeah, there's no end. <laughs> it's true. Do you have any other kind of speculative intuitions about why the weights that are large aren't good? Also, why particular subnetworks are important? I had this idea that I thought could explain things, but it didn't really work out that way. And I don't know why. So the idea is that there is this paper called Coherent Gradients. The idea is basically the reason why gradient descent learns features that are generalizable is because when features exist across many different examples in your data set, they generate gradients that point in the same direction. Mm. And so if you have a lot of gradients that's pointing in the same direction, they add up. If mm. you have gradients that's pointing to orthogonal directions, they decrease, right? Mm. So that's intuitively you can think about gradient signal for features that are common will be amplified by this process. And so I thought that ways that end up small could be the ways that have had inconsistent gradients throughout training. And so if you remove them, maybe the network is, as a whole will have more consistent gradients through the entire training process. Maybe that explains why they converge faster Mm-hmm. and also generalize as well. And then I designed some experiments and I didn't really see that. <laughs> oh, oh no. Okay. <laughs> so that was the hypothesis, but I think I expected to see pruned models having more consistent gradients. That was mm-hmm. one way to kind of test this hypothesis. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily conclusive, but... No. It seemed like that should happen if this is true, and it wasn't the case. It didn't happen. Interesting. Yeah, that seems like a sensible hypothesis, but yeah. I guess you could also look at the gradients, not in the pruned model, but just if they were frozen, I suppose, like throw away those things that were set to zero. No, which doesn't, yeah, it's very difficult to see. Yeah, it's not even clear that high gradient coherence really should lead to better generalization either yeah i think yeah you know the the story of coherent gradients is very simple it's very intuitive it makes sense Mm -hmm. but it's probably not the full story yeah right i think another thing that i saw i think today as i was reading through your other papers the loss change allocation one there i think one of the points in that paper was like oh hey look most of the time they're not coherent. Like they're just always conflicting mm-hmm. with each other. They're rapidly changing for these different neurons. And that's pretty interesting and sort of surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely surprising that almost half of the ways are just moving in the wrong direction every step of training. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we don't know if that's harmful either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could there be a way that that's beneficial? It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with hypotheses for why, but I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I mean, even our measurement is very local, right? It's a local influence on the loss at that yeah. step. That's not necessarily the right metric to look at. 
That's true. Yeah, that's true. I guess you could also, in that case, look at not just the local one, but like, was it moving towards where it ended up? Mm, it usually not. Yeah, yeah, usually yeah. not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, towards where it ended up is like very <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> right. right. If that's the case, we could just trade for one step. And anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it's so strange because, in a sense, it is doing that. Like, it does eventually get there. It is moving in a lot of cases, like almost monotonically towards, like when it's, you know, very nicely converging, almost monotonically towards something in some way. We don't have a good, like, number for that yet at all. Yeah, I think for easy data sets, that actually might be true. I think there was a paper that showed if you take the initial weights and the final weights, just linearly interpolate, the loss just goes straight down. (laughs) (laughs) No idea why. (laughs) Not the case for, obviously, more complicated data sets. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. It could be like, yeah, simple data sets. I don't know. I'm not going to. Never mind. No theory. <laughs> no theory. No, no conjecture. <laughs> conjecture. I love that. <laughs> yes. So how did your work evolve after this? Like, what did you work on next and why? And, and, and are what there... were you interested in? Yeah. Hypotheses you had? And mm. Yeah, I was interested in compositionality. For a while, I thought that that was a very important aspect of something that humans can do that machines can't do very well, and also really important for generalization and reasoning. I would provide a a definition for compositionality, except there isn't a good one. But (laughs) intuitively, you can imagine it's being able to take parts that you know from experience and recombine them in different ways and still be able to make sense of them. Mm-hmm. I came across this work called iterative learning, mm. which is a very interesting hypothesis for why human language evolved to have compositional structure. Mm. And the idea is that human language gets passed on through generations, especially mm. early on. Kids learn the language from listening to their parents or people around them speak. And this process of gathering data from your surroundings only gives you a limited data set, right? Mm. You're not going to hear every possible phrase spoken. Exactly. But then you would need to, as a kid, be able to express everything you want to express. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is that there is a information bottleneck which is, yeah, this transmission from generation to generation goes through a bottleneck. But then you still need to be able to express everything. So it puts pressure on the language to be both compressible and expressive. (laughs) And the compositional language is very good for that. And so there have been some papers that take this idea and use it in neural networks, artificial neural networks and try to train models in this generation mm. process. <laughs> and they did show that you can increase compositionality through this. So they have two agents essentially communicating with each other. The task is set up in a way where you're given a set of objects. Only one agent sees the attributes of the object. And that agent has to then pass a message to the second agent describing mm. what it saw 
so that the second agent could correctly identify that same object from a set of possible candidates. <laughs> and these messages should ideally be compositional because you want individual words referred to individual attributes. You don't want a this you don't want an entangled representation because then you cannot generalize to new combinations of these yeah. attributes. So that's usually the setting where people apply iterative learning to. And mm -hmm. the way they do that is they have these two agents interacting for a while. And then they have the agents output a data set, a pseudo-label data set on the set of objects that it's training on. Okay. Then you initialize new agents. And then you train these agents on that pseudo-label data set. Ah. But you can't train them on that data set for too long. You train them for a small number of iterations to mimic this bottleneck effect. You don't want to completely transfer that information. Mm -hmm. And so if you keep doing this process iteratively, you get agents that start talking in a language that's compositional. Really? Yeah. It's that's quite so surprising. <laughs> yeah, I had the same reaction and I wanted to understand what's going on. And the typical explanation that people give for this is a speed of learning argument. So what's being learned first when you train these new agents on that pseudo-label data set tend to be things that's easy to learn. And compositional information tend to be easier for the model to learn. <laughs> so if you just let the model learn the compositional stuff and then stop before it starts to learn the entangled stuff. Over time, you sort of refine this process. Hmm. At least that's the hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. It does happen. And mm -hmm. it is the case that structured information tend to be easier to learn. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense. But I wasn't confident that that fully explained the whole story because that explanation comes from the cognitive science side. That's the reason why humans, humans, it's easy for us to learn composition language from limited data set. But yeah, so I was looking at that for a while. I'm curious, kind of in this process of understanding the compositionality and iterative learning literature, is there stuff that feels smelly to you? I wouldn't call it smelly. I would call it incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> what feels incomplete? <laughs> I think that explanation, the reason iterative learning works is because every generation, your model learns a representation that's more compositional just because mm -hmm. you do this early stopping, that pseudo-label data set gets a little more compositional each time. I think it makes sense. But I'm not sure that that is enough. I think mm. I just, because a lot of other things could happen too. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the case that that compositionality should be preserved or mm. that it's always the case that you learn compositional things first. Especially for our existing networks, they don't seem like, like what is the structure of these networks that are the teacher and, and student? Yeah, they are. Simple LSTMs usually, but they're trained using reinforce or 
their RL algorithms. Yeah, but those are not known for being amazingly good at composition. Yeah, they suck at that. Yes. Like, you know, it, this theory, like, you let the model learn compositional stuff first and then stop before it learns the entangled stuff. Like, I'm not convinced that it never learns the, learns this in order. Yeah. Or, or like, learn why, why did it not yeah. learn the entangled stuff? Why is it not just entangled the whole yeah. time? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It seems reasonable, but when you really try to think about that mechanism, we don't know. Yeah, we don't really understand it. And we don't know why when you do interaction, again, when the models talk to each other and try to do well on the task, you don't just immediately forget about everything you learned. So at the time, I didn't think that that wasn't the right explanation, but I was still interested in exploring more. Mm -hmm. And so I came across another paper called Knowledge Evolution which was very exciting when I first read it because the performance seemed very good. So the idea in that paper is you take a model and you split it in half. You have two subnetworks, basically, and you train the entire model in one round, one generation. That's basically training to conversions. And then you reset one half of the model's weights, but you keep the other half. And then you train all of the weights again for another round, hmm. what they call a generation. You do this iteratively for many generations. And every time, until it plateaus, but every time the test performance improves. That was very surprising. Mm-hmm. Why? Why does that help? Mm-hmm. Right? And in that paper, they kind of proposed this very cool sounding idea, which is that the knowledge within the half of the model that you keep each time is evolving and somehow it evolves towards better generalization. Do you know why they chose to remove half the network as opposed to removing random parts of it and retraining or something else? So they do, they basically generate a random binary mask mm, that's the I, same shape as the model. Got it, got it. Yeah, the size of each split could differ. That's a hyperparameter you can tune. But they generate that mass and they fix it. And every time you reset the same ways, you never okay. touch. You never touch the ways. Okay. Exactly. This is a little bit of a tangent, but this is really interesting. One random idea I had, as you said, that it says like, what well, it, for knowledge evolution, it's just a fixed 50% or whatever the hyperparameter is. Like, that's the whole thing for the whole training, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder what happens if you make it like more, well, more adaptive. Yeah, or? yeah, more adaptive or more like input dependent or something, right? What do like, you mean? like as a person, there's weights in my head that are active as something is happening, but the weights that are active are like contextual, right? And it's like, oh, I see this thing that is green, and you say the word green. Like there are like things that are active for me seeing it, and there are things that are active for me hearing it. And there's a lot of other stuff that's inactive, right? And so like. I don't know. It's not like half my brain resets every day, right? A fixed half that resets. It's almost <laughs> like you want, like, just thinking about the compositionality, you almost want like these two things like together. You want like to induce, in order to induce compositionality or in order to like separate these things, it might be nice to have it like more dependent or adaptive or like, mm. you know, there's something besides just this like fixed thing. It's cool that it works though. But, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's not clear why 
it works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think I think the original paper thought it might have something to do with learning independent subnetworks because you're resetting each time and somehow that should be good for generalization. It's like a dropout intuition, except mm-hmm. you only have two subnetworks. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't really understand why that should help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One intuition that I have, maybe you can tell me if this makes any sense at all, but like one thing that I thought of, and maybe this is, is what you were saying, but when you're removing half of the weights, there's some work on like, if you remove like the later layers of, of things, like the later layers are sort of like learning on high level features. So if you get rid of some of those features, then the next time you build them again, you get to like take advantage of this, like better representations that you now have later in the training process when you're making them. So yeah. but you, but you do this on each layer that presumably you get to do this, like not just the last layer, but on all layers throughout the entire thing. So each one gets to like make slightly better combinations with ones that are now better earlier as well. So you get to sort of like keep building on new knowledge, never get stuck in this like old original random thing that you started with. Yeah, actually the later layer thing is exactly something we tried in the paper. So your intuition that it builds on top of better features, I guess, in the early layers mm-hmm. is one that we tested in the paper. Yeah. And actually... In fortuitous Yes, yes, in uh, fortuitous forgetting. And we actually don't see any evidence of that being the mechanism, mm-hmm. which That's is pretty- very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It seems so strange. Like, don't you just definitely have better features later uh, you, see, you like, have really different cool. features later yeah but right the, like they're more specific i mean they're, like adapted to your data set there's all this work you know like chris olaw's work and everything with like the circuits work right where it's like oh look like look how highly activated these are by like very specific features in the data wow yeah i mean that's a lot better than the original random ones yeah i was surprised too so i can talk about that part because yeah. that's a big actually a big part of the paper's main idea but before I get there, mm-hmm. I should just mention that when I saw the knowledge evolution paper and I didn't understand what was going on, but it had this iterative component that looked kind of like iterative learning. Yeah. And I thought, what if actually they work for a similar reason, yeah. even though they have very different motivations, very different explanations. Mm-hmm. And that was the original motivation for the forgetting paper interesting yeah the idea is what if it's not about what the model is learning each time but also about what it's losing each time and what information is being forgotten so so yeah that's kind of how this work came about it's a very interesting idea because for humans even though we don't like the idea of forgetting think it's a bad thing it's actually a very important mechanism in our brain that helps with learning and helps with processing information. <laughs> so could it be the case that that same process could be beneficial to artificial neural networks? <laughs> and that's what we explored in the fortuitous forgetting paper. And we came up with this hypothesis that if you can identify a way to forget information that you deem undesirable from <laughs> a trained model, and then you retrain the model from that new starting point, then you can just slowly steer the model away from the things you find undesirable 
towards more desirable characteristics. How do you define what's undesirable? That's a very vague notion. And I don't think we have very good definitions of it. But for a simple proxy, we looked at difficult examples and information associated with those as being undesirable because typically those examples have very specialized features. Talk about this briefly, but they may be more memorized, overfit, whereas easy examples tend to have more general features that are good for generalization. So we took a bunch of algorithms that have this iterative training look to it, and we identify what could be considered a forgetting step where mm. some information from the model gets destroyed. Mm. And we try to measure what that information corresponds to in terms of is it features associated with classifying these difficult examples mm. or the easy examples. And we do see disproportionately, perhaps not surprisingly, that the difficult examples are forgotten more. And so that leads to the hypothesis that we want to forget information that's undesirable and then relearn. And hopefully the relearning process will amplify the more general features that we wanted to preserve. So yes, going back to your question earlier, Josh, the later layers are known to be responsible for classifying more difficult examples. And so in the original knowledge evolution setup, they split the model horizontally, right? They split each layer into halves. And so we thought if our hypothesis is true, then if we can find a way to more specifically target information that's undesirable or information associated with hard examples, we should be able to see a performance improvement. So we decided to split the model vertically and reset the later layers. Yeah. And that worked much, much better. Yeah. So that was one support for the hypothesis. Yeah. We also did similar things in, in other algorithms and saw consistent improvement as you improve the specificity of the forgetting step. Did you guys try? So, you know, if you have this model that's like this, right? And you have a split it horizontally versus vertically, you could also imagine like other lines through here. Right, like not pure horizontal or pure. Do you guys experiment with that? Like kind of changing the ratios for layers? We did not. We did Mm. not. I think because we didn't really care that much about (laughs) like getting the best performance. I think it was more to show if this idea had some merit. But really, this method isn't particularly competitive to other things you can do, such as pre-training. If you just pre-train, you still get the generalization, right? Mm. And so there are many other things that you can do, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend people do this particular type of thing, but it is interesting that it works. Are you saying that knowledge, I mean, I'm not very familiar with it. Are you saying that knowledge evolution is just not very useful in practice? It is useful, but they also have a particular benefit that we don't have actually. So because knowledge evolution is essentially what you get at the end of the knowledge evolution training process is you get a sparse model Mm. because Uh. the ways that you keep resetting 
end up just being not used right. after mm-hmm. many generations. Right. And you can't do that if you only Exactly. You can't cut off the head and then just leave it there. But their performance does actually suffer a lot from that, which we found in the paper. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are still cases where this could be helpful. So actually, there's a paper called Rifle, which does something similar in the context of transfer learning. Yeah. So during fine-tuning, they'll reinitialize the last layer, and then they'll mm-hmm. fine-tune from that new reinitialized layer. And mm-hmm. they found that that was better than if you just started training from the previous model's weights. <laughs> and from this lens, you can see that as a way to forget maybe very pre-trained task-specific information. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So that's actually very useful. Maybe there's like a theory around why pre-training is useful, which is that pre-training gives you these more general representations to start with. And then the fine-tuning step is basically doing fortuitous forgetting. Yeah, actually, I do want to start thinking about fine-tuning as forgetting. Because fine-tuning is similar to catastrophic forgetting, right? Essentially, Mm. you're like moving the model away from its pre-trained task and towards the new task. Mm-hmm. But we think of fine-tuning as good, we think of catastrophic forgetting as bad. Mm-hmm. What is the difference? The difference is just do you, like what you care about the most. Right. You know, struggle forgetting is you did fine-tuning, but you lost the wrong thing. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you lost the desirable information instead right. of the desirable information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it could be going back to the information stored in large pre-trained models and why fine-tuning helps to get certain, to extract certain capabilities from it. What if it's happening because you're actually forgetting some of that other things that used to be the stronger features in your model? Interesting. And so, and that's really interesting. Like, plausibly, this could suggest that if you have a model that is experiencing catastrophic forgetting, it's like worth inspecting what is desirable versus undesirable in this model. And then try to figure out basically like, can we figure out how to keep the thing that is desirable? Like, where is that being learned? Like, maybe one thing that is happening with catastrophic forgetting is like the desirable stuff is being learned in the later layers or something. I don't know. And then those layers get perturbed a lot more. Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting question. The other question you can ask is, can you actually use the process of catastrophic forgetting or fine-tuning, perhaps, as a way to forget information? So by designing a task to fine-tune on, maybe you can design it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to merge all these terms into one thing. Just to finish the thought that you can design the task in such a way that you lead to certain specific types of forgetting in your mm-hmm. original model. Mm-hmm. I would love to see more work on that. I don't know if it's possible or if it's a good idea, but I'd be curious. That's what came up for me when you said, like, I read the paper before, the fortuitous forgetting one twice now, but when you stated the hypothesis today in language, I was like, oh, like, now I see like I finally get it a little bit better. Like, if you can steer the network away from what's undesirable, then it can get better. We know what's undesirable. Like if we go back to some of the compositionality stuff, like 
you know it's undesirable for it to like have these associations that are non-compositional. So you can mm-hmm. imagine hearing away from things that are non-compositional or like right. specifically designing this like training or like not really tra- training process almost feels wrong. And you're like going to change the data and everything is kind of what I'm thinking in order to like bias it towards doing the thing that you wanted and not the thing you didn't want as a way of like mm-hmm. pushing it to get these types of features or like envision, you know, people talk about like the texture versus shape sort of bias. You can imagine like, adaptively noticing like, oh, yep, looks like it's paying too much attention to texture. Like, let's start messing with all the textures and everything, doing harder augmentations over there so the past paying more attention to shape. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like giving us another like tool or lever with which to mess with these systems. It's actually interesting. Stuff. It makes me think about unsupervised environment design, which is Minshi, who we talked to recently on the podcast, does unsupervised environment design. And it makes me think like, and he perturbs the environment in order to give a reinforcement learning agent the like, kind of optimal or, or most difficult next thing to force it to generalize. And I could imagine like if you could find a good way to identify what is desirable versus undesirable information, then you could do unsurprised environment design such that you're like perturbing the environment toward tasks that would allow you to retain the desirable information, but like forget the undesirable information. So like that. Yeah, that's very interesting. You can definitely imagine well I guess it's not easy to design these things, but (laughs) for things like compositionality, maybe you can identify certain weaknesses in your current representation where you have a lot of entanglement and then try to present examples to the model that tries to separate those entangled features. I mean, these things are hard, but I think exactly like you were saying, Josh, like this could be another tool that we can think about. For designing new new ideas. Yeah. It's actually kind of interesting in humans. The way that people who learn really fast learn efficiently is by observing themselves and then being like, oh, like my representations here are not very good. Let me go ask some questions to collect data in this area. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And it's kind of this like, yeah, I guess it's maybe there's no forgetting this. Maybe this theory doesn't work. Well, I think as people, we forget a lot all the time. So. Yeah, maybe we forget a lot all the time. And so, like, you know, clarifying areas. In fact, don't we just forget everything by default, basically? Like, if you don't see the same thing more than once, it's, like, very rare that you'll remember it. Yeah. Yeah, forgetting is good for us to be able to use our memory in new situations. Because mm-hmm. if the way we represent our memory is very detailed and very specific, then it doesn't really translate to a lot of other scenarios. It doesn't get brought up when those scenarios come. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely a positive thing and sometimes also negative. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people who have eidetic memories, like photographic-ish memories, I mean, the, I, apparently photographic is not real, but people who mm-hmm. remember a lot of things, like whether they're worse at generalization. That's a really good question. I don't <laughs> know. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm really curious. Yeah. Huh, I'm gonna write that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have, you have, you have to get it, Patty. Hold on one second. <laughs> Do you feel like your process? So your process for figuring out what is desirable versus undesirable information when applied to image classification—that's like a very specific kind of task where you're identifying what's desirable versus undesirable. Like, do you think? there's a more general way to identify desirable versus undesirable or that like it's actually very task specific? Yeah, I do think it's probably task specific. Although if there's a way to do it more generally, like maybe if you could come up with a objective somehow that, mm-hmm. that 
could identify it for your specific network, right? The, the weights of your network and the task, that would be very cool, but it's not clear how you can do that. I can give you another example, of maybe something that easily considered undesirable, which is spurious features. <laughs> that could be something that you may want to forget. Now, the question is, if you forget spurious features and you retrain the model, does it just learn those features again? Because they're very easy to learn, right? Mm -hmm. That's why they are so prominent in the model. And I think that's possible. I think you might need other mechanisms to suppress it more explicitly. But that would be just another easy way or easy scenario where you can define something as undesirable right but in general i do think it is a challenge it's interesting you know josh and i kind of have this hypothesis maybe is what it's called that a conjecture but <laughs> it's not a conjecture because it's shared so we have a, a conjecture that it seems like our environment setup is in a reinforcement learning environment and this is because to us it seems like learning is always for humans within some objective. Like we're trying to probably like mostly satisfy some need or like kind of reach some objective that we've set for ourselves. Well, not always, but often. Not always, but often. And that helps us figure out what to pay attention to. It helps us figure out what to forget, what to learn. And mm -hmm. it makes me think like, okay, it is the case that desirable versus undesirable is within the context of some objective for it seems like, you know, that's why it's task specific. And so if you are an agent that has goals, then maybe there's some way to kind of like propagate those goals down to figure for the agent to figure out what is desirable versus undesirable. Like that would be maybe mm -hmm. the ideal, that would be the ideal, like general way to mm -hmm. I think there's other parts to it too, though, like desirable and undesirable can apply even without goals. Like even mm. if we're talking about, say, an image classifier with no goal, I mean, it has a loss function, so maybe it has an implicit goal. But if we're talking about something that's not agentic, mm. we're just trying to understand the world. And we want like our goal as, you know, system designers is like to make it generalized and make it robust in the world. So we still have goals there. And I can imagine this being useful in that setting too. Like we don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be an agent or, or an explicit goal. Yeah, I agree. So, I agree. But kind of like, I guess the initial question I was asking is like, is there a more general way? Like, is there a generalization of desirable versus undesirable? And I think it seems like the answer is, well, it is always in the context of some goal. Either the yeah. goal is held by a human who designs a task, in which case it does not feel bad general because mm -hmm. it's designing the task. Versus like, if it is being figured out by the agent, then the agent needs to know what the goal is. Uh, unless the human is like, in this case of like, doing the human designer working on generalization for their system, then that does seem sort of general. Like we want image systems that don't latch on to like weird textures on things and that do end up applying robustly over lots of different lighting conditions and to different scenarios in different countries, like in different places at different times, right? I guess that's and so fair. You could, I guess one thing that I was thinking from, as you guys were saying this and as Harry was, was talking about this, but you can almost imagine like designing a thing that kind of helps with this type of generalization to point out like, okay, we know what types of information we do and don't want in there, what we do want to forget, what we don't want to forget. Like we could set up a thing <laughs> such that we could like build this in there. And it'd be, it's interesting to think about using the forgetting tool as part of that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I wonder if you can just design, maybe it applies to more the RL setting, but in general, if you have some sort of forgetting mechanism built into the learning process, but you don't, there's no 
perhaps there's no separate objective function for the forgetting. It's mm. almost like you just have attention and the attention learns to do different things. If you have a forgetting mechanism that the model has to do, but it can figure out how to do that while mm -hmm. it's also learning, maybe, yeah, it's not clear how to do this, but yeah. it could be an interesting general way of solving that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you want your model to basically, there's like, I'm not exactly sure how it set this up, but it's like you want your model to iterate gen to a forgetting mechanism that is general in its Yeah, environment. yeah. It's just, you force it to discard some information and it has to figure out what information to discard. discard yeah. Going back to your point about spurious features, I think another, it is interesting to think about whether does this just relearn it right away when you get rid of these spurious features. It feels like there's some sort of connection between this like forgetting of spurious features and also what shape those features could even be in the first place. Like, can you use this forgetting to identify like, okay, yes, we need to remove spurious correlations. All right, great. They're here. How do we make it so we just couldn't even have learned those? Like, why is it even possible for us to learn these things in the first place? Like, how can we make systems that are robust to that and just don't learn that? Uh, that's difficult because maybe that's all we're learning, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to define what spurious features are in the general case. Yeah, or even if they're not useful, because I think humans still use various features. They just also know that sometimes they don't hold. <laughs> if I see a cow on the grass, that grass is going to help me determine that it's more of a cow, right? Even though I could see a cow on the beach and also recognize it. But yeah, it's weird to think that various features by itself is negative. <laughs> But yeah, getting rid of specific spurious features could be very valuable, very doable. Like, for example, things with fairness, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want the model to use race, gender, and features like that. So yeah, it would be very interesting to, to see yeah. where that's stored in the model or how. I guess I'm not so sure. I'm not totally sold. Just pushing back for a second on yeah. your example with the classic cow, grass, camel, a sand one. And that... I think for people, like, we are removing the spurious features of those. Like, when I look at it and you ask me, like, what type of animal is this? I'm basically in my head, like, segmenting it to look at the animal part of the photo and then classifying based on that. So I really have, I'm not looking at, like, oh, but there was this pink pixel up in the upper right. And then last time I saw a cow, there was a pink thing nearby. Like, that's just mm -hmm. not how it is happening for my, like, object recognizer. It doesn't really have access to those features, I feel like, even. Mm. Yeah, like that's fair. Uh, yeah. Like a super low level spurious feature. Yeah, like the pixels aren't allowed to like do the same thing in yeah. my head as they can do in the neural network somehow. I'm not hard for me to explain it exactly, but it doesn't feel like there's a, a difference somehow. So I think you're right that to actually classify the cow, we're looking at the cow features. Uh, I do suspect that things like the background does influence how we feel feel when we do that classification. So mm -hmm. if we saw mm -hmm. a cow on the beach, we might like take an extra second yeah. to be like, oh, is that really yeah. a cow or is that like a stuffed animal? Or I don't know, yeah. someone dressed yeah. as a cow or something weird. Where yeah. it's on grass, it would feel very natural and it would reinforce perhaps, even if maybe we're not consciously aware that 
it makes yeah. sense that this is a cow. Yeah, it, you know, actually saying that now, like, I think that's a good way of putting it. You're right. It would feel a little bit weird. It does feel weird when you see the cows on the beach. No, they're always right, straight. Right. But now that you say it, it's like, maybe there's actually multiple systems happening here, right? Like the first house one is confused. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. wait, is that a camel? No, it's a cow. But there's a second pass system as well that does something with a different set of features and is slower and happening to be a different path. And like when the two of them line up, hey, everything is good. Mm-hmm. When they don't line up, then we're like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, mean, exactly. Yeah. Right. There's kind of like a reinterpretation. In humans, at least, like the way that we interpret a scene is dependent on kind of the context that we're holding in mind. I don't know if you've seen those experiments where you can show a human an image of a chessboard with some shadows on it. Got like a few pieces on it and the shadows are cast and it's a black and white chessboard. It's 3D and they'll basically ask you like, what color, they'll point to three squares and be like, what color are these squares? And I'll be like, oh, this square is like white and this square is black. But in fact, they're the same shade of gray because the shadows have been cast. Uh, So what we interpret is clearly dependent on like some set of priors in our head. Maybe I think some people study this reinterpretation pass this like quote unquote second pass. Like if you see a cow on a beach and you kind of do its first pass interpretation, you're like, oh, there's like an animal on the beach. Like what is that animal? Now the second pass actually will end up with a different result than the first pass because you're changed your context somehow. It's like a very high level hand wavy way of explaining what's going on. But yeah. And your second pass might have resulted in a different thing, Josh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you experience surprise, I guess, at Mm -hmm. an initial look and then... Your brain does more work the, to explain yeah. that surprise. Yeah. I also think humans do learn spurious features. For example, phobias are examples of kind of like mm-hmm. what specific spurious features. It's not like a pixel-based feature. Mm-hmm. Just because I think our data diversity is too high in our visual field in order to get like pixel ba- Like we don't have, I guess if we only grew up staring at a monitor screen and one of the pixels <laughs> was, was like, one of the pixels was, was dead, then we maybe have like a... <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because that's actually how you do see the world you have a huge blind spot right? that's true that's true so, but no one never rem- like thinking yeah, that's that normally right <laughs> but it's not the same as a dead pixel because the inputs are like are always varying and so i'm always predicting my brain's always predicting different things with this blind spot yeah but anyway like we do end up learning spurious features that are just at a slightly different level. Like people who are afraid of spiders, anything that is shaped like a spider, they'll be afraid of. Mm. And so how spurious it is, I think, depends on the data set and kind of the task. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in a cave surrounded by poisonous spiders, like maybe it's reasonable to be afraid of spiders. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a very interesting example. More <laughs> <laughs> terrified. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, some spurious features are good. Yeah. It's only spurious if it's not actually predictive. Like, mm-hmm. And whether it's useful is dependent on your data set and your tasks. Yeah. Right, right. But going back to, to Hattie's work for a bit, I think it would be really interesting to see. Yes, we could remove spurious features, but it's, it's really interesting. I like what you said. I think it's a really interesting like tool and avenue for people to explore more in the future. I really like the setup of the paper. Of like, hey, look, here's another thing that's happening that we can potentially explore as like a whole other way of learning stuff okay. like unlearning stuff <laughs> yeah curious, unlearning stuff exactly yeah yeah i'm curious if anyone has built on that idea of kind of unlearning and forgetting as a mechanism hmm. well i haven't seen too much stuff that's very new in terms of 
how do you forget? But I, there was a paper coming out of Mila. I think it was called the primacy bias in reinforcement learning. Mm. And the idea was that the agent overfits to the information that it first, the interactions that it first sees. The first data points in your replay buffer, it will overfit to that. And that leads it to performing worse on just generalization or even performing that specific task. Mm -hmm. And if you do something where you periodically reset the agents, essentially, Mm -hmm. but you have, you keep track of all of the interaction data that you gathered in your replay buffer, you train the new agents on that without this bias of having trained more on the initial data, then you get a pretty significant boost in performance. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. interesting. So that's kind of another forget and relearn process. You try to forget this bad information you learned from your first interactions. It's almost like reminds you of fixing traumatic experiences in, in humans, right? Like you want to kind of forget that bad memory, but I don't think we reinitialize our brains, but yeah. <laughs> maybe. Well, I actually, I actually neural networks. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a theory of human trauma as like trauma is overfitting and then therapy uh, is overfitting talking about it at some point but uh it is the case. Yeah, yeah if you actually if you look at all therapeutic methods they break down into like you access a network that is overfit then you get some t- new training data from your modern life and then you update the network like all of them break down either they're be- they help you access better or they help you update better or they help you get new training data <laughs> interesting. interesting yeah, yeah. what do you feel like holds the field back thinking from your perspective now That's a big question. I'm not a huge fan of the publishing culture. I think (laughs) probably a lot of people can relate to this, but this pressure to have to publish papers every few months nowadays just seems counterproductive because it makes you... I mean, I don't want to say like incremental work is bad. It's very valuable, but it almost forces you to do that if you want to publish quickly and often. So it produces this very competitive environment that I think is not beneficial for thinking about more novel ideas or bigger ideas or ideas that's going to be more general across different architectures or even problems, right? There are a lot of papers that Find a specific problem comes up with a specific solution. But nowadays, especially seeing how much scale solves things, I feel like it's worth focusing more on ideas that's going to scale well. And yeah. it's not specific to individual problems or specific mm-hmm. data sets. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just remember like when I used to do research at Uber, when I worked on the deconstructing lottery ticket paper, I had no expectations for publishing. I had no expectations on myself for publishing because I've never published and it wasn't my job. I was doing it for fun in my free time while I had a full-time job at Uber doing something else. (laughs) So I think that was my favorite time doing research. So I miss that, and I think everyone could become happier as researchers if there mm-hmm. was less pressure 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like actually a lot of the people who are working on understanding neural networks at a much more fundamental level publish much more slowly. Like Chris Ola with the circuits work or Greg Yang on the neurotangent kernels, like one paper a year. And mm-hmm. it feels like we have a lot of physicists on our team and they come from an environment where you can submit to a journal at any time. And this results in much more fundamental work. So it does make sense. I'm actually really curious like the Chrysala approach or the Grinking approach, they're like different from your approach for examining neural networks. How would you lay out the different landscape of different approaches for examining neural networks and kind of understanding them? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought too much about this, but my initial, I guess the way I normally see things is there is an empirical theory type of approach, and then there's actual theory type mm. approach, like real theory. Of course, real actual theory, you know, you try to prove why things happen or that mm-hmm. things happen. Usually, you're limited to more toy settings, but not always. And so that can be very satisfying if you get a good answer, but it can be very difficult. And then the empirical theory is more where I fall under which mm-hmm. is looking at the model, try to find some interesting behavior, and then coming up with hypotheses, and then designing experiments to evaluate if that hypothesis is true. Uh, Chris Ola, like the interpretability type work, I think is very special, actually very rare these days because it's difficult. I think I was under the impression that interpretability is kind of doomed for large models, but actually in the papers they came out with recently with induction heads and things like that changed my opinion on that. It was very impressive work. So I feel like the induction heads or that kind of work almost sits in between actual okay. theory and empirical theory because they have both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Like, they do their whole analysis in order to develop theory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And then the theory really allows you to run better experiments, too, because you can really drill down to the aspects of the problem that should matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. there's just too many possible hypotheses. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's really interesting. What do you feel like is most exciting in the area of like either the empirical theory or the theoretical theory? I've been really interested in context learning recently. Hmm. We're trying to figure out ways to steer pre-trained models in desirable ways or Hmm. extract certain capabilities or information from it. In context learning itself is a very interesting phenomenon that mm-hmm. I would be, I think we understand it to some degree, but probably not fully. What is in context learning? In context learning is when in the prompt that you give to the model, you provide a couple examples of what you uh-huh. want the model to do. Mm-hmm. Essentially mm-hmm. prompting or what's called future learning in some of these mm-hmm. language model literature. That's crazy that it works right i think i certainly didn't expect it to do so well Mm -hmm. so what's the limits of that like can it work for everything or is there some 
fundamental limit to what it can do based on the mechanism that it uses. Mm-hmm. So I suspect if in-context learning uses something called the induction head, mm-hmm. primarily, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's like you look at your current token and in order to figure out what token to output next, you look at the context or the previous prompt that you have, mm-hmm. you find a token that looks similar to your current token, mm-hmm. and then you output whatever came after that previous token. Mm-hmm. So it's like finding a pattern or finding a pattern that looks similar in your prompt mm-hmm. and then using that to output the next tokens. And of course, you do this in abstract ways because it's a large language model. It's magical. It can do all these analogies. But fundamentally, if that's the way it works, I suspect there may be some limitation. Because mm-hmm. it's very much like a pattern matching. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't fully understand this. And I think it'd be very exciting t- to dig into that. What are the questions you have about it? Well, the most exciting thing I want to do, or I want to see the capability of, is to use in-context learning to make the model reason. If it's doing pattern matching, it's not doing reasoning. Or, mm-hmm. you know, that's debatable. But I think... Yeah, just can you imagine a use case where you have this large language model and you never need to fine-tune it, you don't need to do anything special. Just by explaining what you want, the model could understand it and give you what you want. How do you define reasoning? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's hard to define reasoning from the bottom up. But I would... Measure reasoning by looking at outer distribution generalization or a systematic generalization. Mm-hmm. When you have a split, especially a systematic split in your training data and your test data is different in some systematic way, but follows the same rule. If the model can do well, then that's strong evidence to suggest that it's doing reasoning. I guess maybe one tricky thing about out-of-distribution generalization with these large models is that nothing is out-of-distribution. So then how do I know that my test is actually kind of a split from my training data because this has been trained on everything? Yeah, that's a good point. So actually, another sign that it's not de-reasoning is when model outputs things that doesn't make sense, which it happens all the time right now. (laughs) Can you get a model to sort of evaluate the information that it contains mm. and check if things are consistent with, with each other. Okay. And maybe if they're not, try to eliminate the information that doesn't let you, or at least the connections that don't make sense, connections mm. between ideas that don't make sense. Mm. Right now, there's no such capability as far as I can see. You can make the model say anything. Mm. Right. So, I mean, that's not a good definition of reasoning, but. If it stops doing that, I would be very impressed. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, one of our team members submitted a bunch of big bench tasks that are oriented toward reasoning. And they involve things like you take a bunch of objects and then you tell the model how the objects are first arranged and then you shuffle all the objects. And then you ask the model, what is the order of the objects? Mm. It does a very, very bad task. And I think there's actually a type of task that's quite interesting for testing reasoning because 
when I think about what I'm doing in this situation, that step-by-step process is a reasoning process. Now you might be able to say like, okay, this model might be able to solve it if you use the step-by-step thing. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. But just getting finer grain control on how the model behaves would be very exciting. The Mm -hmm. step-by-step thing works sometimes, but it's not very robust, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. You shared a few some unusual research opinions, like forgetting as learning and catastrophic forgetting equals fine tuning, but just like the wrong information was forgotten. Do you have other controversial or unusual research opinions you feel like that other people don't seem to agree with? I don't know if this is an opinion that I hold jolly, but <laughs> <laughs> I think for a while I was interested in compositionality and maybe even causality, these kind yeah. of things. And now I'm starting to think that they could be solved by scale. And I think a lot of people don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people agree with it, though. Yeah, right, right. So I don't know how controversial it is, especially in Silicon Valley, but I have spoken to many people who don't really agree. And I think the interesting question here is also at what scale? Mm-hmm. Because you could imagine with infinite data, infinite diversity, perhaps you do get all these things for free, but that's not very practical or interesting. (laughs) So I think a very interesting question to figure out is how far away are we from Mm. the level where we start to get better compositionality? We're already (laughs) seeing improvements, but just how does that trajectory look like? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. And also, I think building on that, like an open question I have is how far does compositionality go? Like in humans, compositionality is infinite. We can just continually create new abstractions infinitely. Mm. And in machine learning systems or like in these large language models, because of a lack of continual learning, like there's not this kind of infinity. And so it makes me think that actually like true compositionality, where you can do this infinite compositionality that humans can do require some kind of continual learning or like require some kind of like update. Maybe that's not true or like require some kind of recurrence. Maybe it's not true. But yeah, I'm curious, like to me, even if compositionality is better at scale, it doesn't feel solved until it's able to do this kind of infinite construction that humans can do. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it could do that though, right? Why? Because, well, it can just keep outputting things. And right. so once you put an infinity in there, you're in trouble. Well, it can keep outputting things, but the thing is it doesn't update its own like at some point it runs out of context space. Mm. Like your context length is not super long. And so the way humans store, I mean, our compositionality is not infinite, but the way that we store new compositions once it kind of like we run out of memory is by learning them. And right. so, yeah, that's a good point. I think continued learning is definitely still very important. Potentially, yeah, it's interesting because continued learning either is the most important problem or it's not important at all. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like depending on how you see things, either you you just train on all the data you have. And actually, there's some evidence that if you scale up, you can just keep training on more data, you don't really lose the previous information. Right. But then in the other perspective, I mean, 
that's kind of the final frontier, right? How do you <laughs> continuously improve the model in such a way that it integrates the old information properly mm. and actually understand when certain knowledge need to be updated and when it's not? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is not my area, but I, it's, it's interesting that some people think it's not important at all and some people think it's like the most important thing. Do you think compositionality can be solved without continual learning? Depending on what you mean by compositionality. <laughs> because I think what you were talking about is almost like learning new parts and learning new relationships between parts. <laughs> I think that will probably require continued learning because it's new information. <laughs> but if you're talking about using existing knowledge, but generalizing it compositionally, that could be something that doesn't require continued learning. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, it depends on how many steps of kind of composition, maybe something like that. Well, what's a concrete example of steps? Yeah, I'm thinking about like science. If I want my model to do science, what it needs to do is to learn new things and kind of like construct them into new abstractions or like new theories and then use those in order to like run experiments and then use those experiments to like construct more theories and then kind of like continually do that. And possibly like there's some way to kind of like fine tune, continually fine tune the model as it's constructing new theories. But yeah, I mean, okay, so it makes sense then if the model is discovering new relationships. You want to save those discoveries so that the model doesn't have to redo all the steps every time. I think that's a very fair capability that we want to give. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, yeah, it could maybe it could be solved by infinite context length, but that's probably not the solution we want. <laughs> right. I would have hired a large computer, which is very. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, I think what's interesting for me in this sort of like compositional and transformative scale part is that we are seeing some signs of some compositionality, as you were saying, from these things as we scale them up. But I think the most interesting thing to me is to ask, like, what is that? Why does that happen as a way of like backing it out and doing more of that? It's like Yay. we have been given like an example of something and that would be great to study. Like, what is going on here? Like, why does this work better than simple n-grams? Is it just these skip n-grams basically? Like, is that it? Probably not, but like, you know, yeah, there's just, there's something interesting happening there um, yeah. that I don't understand very well at all. My hunch is that if you're given a data set with enough diversity, such that a compositional representation becomes the most e efficient representation mm -hmm. to represent the entire data set, then it emerges automatically but that's usually not the case given that limited data set because probably mm -hmm. there are entangled concepts to exploit here right that's interesting it's similar to the iterated learning like compositional language idea mm -hmm. where there's like an information bottleneck but in this case the bottleneck is your representation yeah the bottleneck is almost the data itself having Sorry. to represent right but having to represent the data given your limited capacity as a model. Right, mm -hmm. right. And this is maybe why, like a theory of why, like diversity of data is really important is that it like forces this bottleneck. Mm -hmm. Your capacity becomes a bottleneck, whereas if you don't have enough data mm -hmm. diversity, then you don't get this representation capacity as a bottleneck. It's interesting. Right, right. Huh. 
That's a yeah. hypothesis, though. Hypothesis, <laughs> yes. Definitely. Yeah. Disclaimer. We conjecture. Yeah, exactly. Conjecturing on this podcast. That's the whole point of podcast. That's right. Like, we can't talk about any of these things in papers. <laughs> right, so. right. It'll be interesting things. Do you feel like there was an opinion that you once really strongly believed in, but now you've reversed your opinion? Mm, it's probably... Yeah, like, do we need specific things for causality, compositionality in these theories, or do they just emerge as your data set becomes diverse? I haven't fully changed my opinion, but it's shifting. <laughs> Interesting. That makes sense. Go Have ahead. you ever been part of a research group that you felt like was really effective, or sort of what are the things that make research groups, like, really effective or, or fun to be a part of, or... Would you like to see more of the world? Yeah, I I think the group that I joined at Uber called Deep Collective was probably one of the best kind of cultures that I have experienced and could imagine exist. So mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. And it's very special. And it's kind of the main reason that I was able to even do research as someone mm -hmm. who literally before joining had just a Coursera course on neural networks. That's kind of, but yeah, I didn't even know how to use Python at that point. So there was a lot of patience on their part to work with me and being well, encouraging. What were the aspects of the culture that you feel like were really like awesome for research? It was very supportive of everyone's ideas and questions. No matter who you are, there's no like sense of seniority or, you know, they had me in the meetings and I wasn't even on their team. They had other people from other teams at Uber as well. And it was very welcoming mm -hmm. and that made it feel easy to ask really stupid questions like, oh, why does that happen? Or how come it's not this way? And I think a lot of good research ideas actually came out of Weird questions. Mm -hmm. I definitely had many moments of that during, during my projects. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was just, at least for me, I didn't feel any pressure. I didn't feel any judgment. It was all very accepting and it was just fun. Like everyone hanging out even after work. It was just enjoyable. <laughs> cool. What mistakes have you made and you learned a lot from or sort of relatedly like what kind of tips or tricks have you learned that have made you more effective than when you first started out after your first Coursera class? <laughs> I think being better at managing my experiments and at coding probably I'm still quite bad at all those things but certainly an improvement from where I started and especially for empirical work that's <laughs> Your speed of iteration is everything. Mm -hmm. So at least that's something I want to get better at. But mm -hmm. I find that to be very important. Thank you so much. I feel like I've got a whole bunch of new ideas and new questions, new weird questions <laughs> about why things work or don't. And yeah, this was super fun. Honestly, thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun, K-A-N-J-U-N, and our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time.